Coming up in this podcast, market volatility, young rich, gaming fortunes, property taxes, fraud cases, Cisco, and our special report on commercial property. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Um, Mark, the ASX has steadied after a volatile week, but many investors will be ruining a, a poor 12 months, uh, including WA from what we can see. Yeah, look, it's been a tough old week on the markets and one of those periods of time when investors need to reflect on long term, which is what investing in shares is all about. Uh, driven primarily by what was happening in Wall Street. Now, the US stock market has had a very strong run, um, largely during the period of Donald Trump's presidency. So lots of debate around cause and effect, uh, but that's come off. Now, you know, every market after a big run up is gonna come off at some point, And this is one of those corrections, triggered by a whole bunch of things going on around the world. US interest rates, uh, the, the trade war with China, uh, some wobbles with Italy and their budget situation. Um, so a whole range of figure, uh, factors that have triggered the fall. Um, and then that flowed through to the Australian stock market during the week. And we saw some, uh, particularly Thursday was a, an especially bad day, but Friday, you know, the markets uh, picked up a little bit. Mm. So that's that's encouraging. But it's uh, off, been off, I mean, this month generally, I think they're saying down 10%. And yes. generally, I think they're saying for this year or... Now, I'm not going to say 12 months, but calendar year, I think, for the whole market is pretty much back to square one or something like that. That's about right, yeah. Um, and in fact, for WA, it's been a similar story. So we've got our BN30 index. So that's 30 WA-based companies that reflect broadly um, the WA market. Uh, that, in fact, hit an all-time high early in October. Uh, the BN30 hit 157 points. Mm. Uh, it's now come off about 11%. So a reflection of you know, the Australian market overall um, has hit WA stocks in a similar way. Yeah, and I, I mean, I had a quick look at that before we were speaking, and uh, I think it was 130 uh, was the index at about this time uh, last year, and now it's 133. So in fact, gone nowhere. That's not even inflation, really, is it? Which just adds to that challenge for investors. You know, residential property is pretty flat interest rates are low, stocks aren't moving much, yeah. so it's hard to get big returns. Mm. Uh, but there's no magic solution out there. And when people do go chasing those big returns, then you take on higher risk as well. Yeah, no, definitely uh, definitely a, a, a tough, uh, tough week, tough month, and what's looking like a tough year. And uh, Mark, I have to say, October, well, you know, there's been some pretty spectacular crashes in October <laughs> in years gone by, so another thing to think about. Not that we want to be doom and gloom in here. Um, now, uh, we follow some pretty, and let's, let's, uh, let's be up to, upbeat then, uh, we follow some successful entrepreneurs through our news and, and awards like 40 Under 40. Uh, now, sometimes these people pop up on the national radar. Uh, two of them, Lawrence Escalante and Rory Vassello, were new names on a national rich list. Yeah, and look, these are two people that we've written about over the years. Um, and I think a lot of the listeners out there, particularly Lawrence Escalante, is probably a name that most people would not be familiar with. He's the founder of a company called VGW Holdings, 
uh, which derive from virtual gaming worlds. It's an online gaming business. Mm. Now, by coincidence, this company has just lodged their financial report for the year to June 2018, and there's some spectacular numbers in there mm. that people, I think, will be intrigued by. So this uh, low-profile Perth company had revenue in the last year of $380 million. Um, now, this derives, as I say, from um, online gaming, something called Chumba Casino, and there's an online poker game. Um, so clearly some sort of smart IP and software and so on that sits behind us. Um, Lawrence founded this business in 2010, um, and before that he developed some other um, gaming um, uh, software. Yep. Um, so clearly he, he knows that field. Uh, we reported on them a few years ago when they considered a stock market listing. They tried to do a, a, a backdoor listing on the ASX, uh, but given there was a bunch of issues there, but including the fact they're in this online gaming industry, also the fact that they're now, um, a lot of their operations from a regulatory perspective are out of Malta. So it's, it's a interesting space that they're in. Yeah, yeah. But look, the fact is, they're a substantial business. They employ, um, I haven't confirmed the exact numbers, but you know, about 300 people. Um, a lot of them are in Perth. So it's, it's a good opportunity or, or a big employer for a lot of people in that software development space. Yeah, look, and I look, I've watched this business from a little bit of a distance over the last few years. Um, and those numbers, I mean, they, they would be, from what I understand, probably the largest employer of web developer IT specialists in, 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 in WA. They're the ones who've been filling up some pretty large amount of space in some of the CBD uh, buildings that uh, have obviously, you know, needed to be occupied as the uh, mining companies have exited. So, you know, there we've got some tech, you know, backfilling, which is great. And look, the, the, uh, the interesting thing about this business, and, and it is interesting that when we talk about gaming, we tend to think about video games and shoot 'em up kind of stuff, whereas in fact, this is, you're right, this is a, a gambling gaming. Um, but th they don't, as far as I know, um, have cash winnings, right? It's all voucher stuff. So people pay to play, but they win various vouchers to do things. And that's how I think they've managed to operate uh, globally and, and penetrate the US where there's a whole lot of regulation there. And I, and I think they kind of keep ahead of the regulators because they're uh, they're unusual and cutting edge but uh, maybe that's one of the challenges around why they haven't listed and i presume we've got their accounts because they set up a public company a few years ago when they were planning to list and now they reveal their numbers that's right and well in fact they put them up on their own website which is unusual yeah, for okay. an unlisted business um, well, so presumably they have a fair amount of shareholders then and, and feel yep. that they may as well but lawrence still owns 60 something percent of the business yeah um, and i'll just we're interesting to talk about you know what's what's clearly a, a very substantial business but you know valuing an unlisted business and any other private person um, is fraught um, so you know he's, he's the figure that's put on Lawrence's net wealth is 62 million dollars mm. now this is a business albeit they made a profit last year and yeah. they had positive cash flow but look at their balance sheet and it's still negative um, equity yeah, right. so they've got a lot of accumulated losses so, you know, you can, you can play with these numbers a lot. Yeah, but yes. presumably that's not his whole wealth, right? He's, he's funding this through other wealth. It's a private business person, you know. So every time you read a rich list, just yep. be cautious about how uh, the listeners interpret those numbers. Gotcha, absolutely. And uh, Rory Vassello, 
Yeah, look, Rory's the other person that's mentioned on the rich list. Um, and once again, a person we've written a lot about. He had um, outstanding success with his childcare business, uh, which he sold into a listed company for something like $65 million, I recall. Um, and subsequently invested in a whole range of uh, property things. Um, and we reported recently part of a consortium that bought the Perth Heat baseball team. That's right. Um, so, you know, uh, and a 40 under 40 winner, I might add. So yeah. a, a good story there. And do you think maybe because he bought the baseball team, has that put him up on the radar nationally and, and drawn attention to him so someone's actually gone and tried to check out what he's worth? Especially when uh, Eileen Bond uh, was part <laughs> yes. of that consortium yes. as well. A, a fascinating inclusion. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, just remind me, they're not the only two West Australians on that young rich list. There are others. They're just the new ones. Is that right? They're the new ones. So it's people under the age of 40, as I understand it. Yeah, yeah. So some of the people that have appeared before, Paul Blackburn, a very successful apartment developer, mm-hmm. uh, Ronnie Elhage from Niche Living Holdings. Yeah. Uh, but similar story. Uh, you know, these people have um, have run businesses and, and achieved a lot, but you know, when I look at some of the numbers they get put against their uh, net wealth, yeah. I, I scratch my head. I'm very surprised at how big some of these numbers are. Yeah, no. So they're not taking anything away from their businesses, but no. gee whiz, I'm not sure if those numbers are how they stack up. And presumably they're not on the young rich list anymore. Is that right? They're the wrong side of forty. Yeah. Make it. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, Now, Mark, uh, we spoke about property taxes on foreign investors, uh, I think that was last week. Um, Now, this week, there's sort of some different news around that. Yeah, well, last week, it was a focus on the state government. They're putting on a surcharge for foreign buyers of residential properties. And now the... Um, at a federal level, uh, Bill Shorten and his team have been talking about um, some substantial changes around uh, both negative gearing and capital gains tax. Now, these policies were developed at a time when the Sydney and Melbourne markets in particular were red hot and property prices were going through the roof and a lot of people legitimately were concerned about the affordability of housing. Um, So the Master Builders Association has come out and done some number crunching. Um, And they're really concerned about the effect that these policies will have at a national level, uh, because around the country, residential property markets have come off the boil, um, both from a a price perspective, but also from a construction perspective. Um, And it's a very soft outlook across both those areas. So layer on top of that, um, a tightening up of uh, the tax rules. So reducing capital gains tax concessions and, and tightening eligibility for negative gearing. Um, and the Master Builders, Associ- Master Builders Association is predicting um, a significant fall away in activity in those markets. Yeah, okay. And the Housing Industry Association has added their voice to uh, this concern as well. Now, you know, I'm just trying to remember my history tells me that it was a Labor government in the early 90s that removed, or the late 80s, early 90s that removed negative gearing briefly. Under Paul Keating? Yeah. And uh, so it was the 90s. And then uh, that was a cataclysmic effect um, because suddenly rents skyrocketed because people could no longer afford to have a loss on their property because it wasn't a tax deduction as, as it had previously been. And the and I don't know how quickly the government backflipped, but I think it was pretty quick. It was a pretty rapid uh, change of heart there. Yeah, yeah. they saw the, a fairly a dramatic impact 
on the residential property market. So mm. Paul Keating uh, reversed his position and uh, and reintroduced the negative gearing concessions that we're all now familiar with. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a really interesting subject, and I don't know what the perfect outcome is here. The, the problem with it is, you know, and, you know, you give Paul Keating his dues, generally around these subjects, he was right. <laughs> and I think he was right. Obviously, the impact was, in the short term, was significant. and uh, But maybe it would have forced a different market where people would have been more encouraged to be homeowners rather than renters. Um, but we still sit here today, and the reason Bill Shorten and his team are even suggesting changes like this is because first homeowners, I mean, I guess younger people in general, are competing with investors for property, and it's harder and harder. And you know, you go, you fast forward 25 years from when Paul Keating did that, and you've got a very hot Sydney and Melbourne market, but even in WA, prices are are extreme. So the challenge is how do you prick the investment bubble and stop them competing with um, first homeowners in particular, um, but yet still keep the property industry and the construction industry going in a good fashion? I don't know what the answer is, Mark. And I think the, the, the proposal that Bill Shorten has put up will continue to trigger debate in the lead up to the federal election yes. due next year. Because one of the things they've talked about is that um, negative gearing will continue to apply for existing properties. Sure. It's for new purchases. So, you know, that's a worthy of um, c- continued debate, I think, because it's not going to, um, you know, slash and burn all the existing investors. You know, they're safe with what they've got at the moment. Yeah, right. It's just new people coming into the market will have to think a bit more carefully about whether property stacks up under the proposed changes. And maybe if you're a property investor, there might be a, a, a little bubble that takes place because people are getting in ahead of that. That's possible. Then again, look out for the scare campaign about it from the industries because there's a lot of people employed, a lot of blue-collar workers employed in the construction industry. You say, hey, hang on, this is going to affect you. So it might not affect me as an investor with an existing property, but, boy, it's going to infect, affect people in the building industry, and it also, you know, there are lots of aspirational people who are looking forward to being able to buy their second property someday. Oh, suddenly that might get harder. Interesting political decision. Um, Now, Mark, uh, we've reported on two recent cases of white-collar crime. What was interesting about those? A cautionary tale for people out there running businesses, not just big businesses, but very modest businesses. Mm. Two cases, and we've seen these sorts of things happen over the years. And I think we've talked about one of these, one of the cases, it was only a few weeks ago, this kind of thing, right? Yeah. So people that are employed, you know, a bookkeeper, an administrator, a junior accountant, but someone that has access to the, uh, the bank accounts, you know, the, you, you hand over someone to do the banking in your business. Mm. What both of these cases show, and it's the, the pattern that keeps on occurring, people just pulling out bits of money along the way. Yep. But then over the years, it skimming, adds up. Skimming it, right? So in one case, um, a woman who, in fact, her partner owned the business, but she, was, she pulled out $1.1 million Christ. for her personal spending. The other case, which I found particularly extraordinary, it happened in two businesses. Mm. So this woman was employed, pulled about $600,000 out of one business, which then went into administration. 
she got a new job at another business and just continued on her merry way right. and pulled about $600,000 out of that business. Now, both of these women are behind bars. They're serving terms of sort of four to five years in jail. So, you know, there's a, clearly a major consequence for them yep. um, and, you know, endeavours to try and get the money out of them in future. Wish people luck doing that. Yeah, because she um, spent it on nice things, which... They put in inverted commas, which is typically not got a great resale value, right? Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. So, look, for all the people out there who are running a business, just think about what systems you've got, what checks and balances you've got. Yeah. You might be a long-serving employee and a trusted employee, and in the vast majority of cases, all is fine. But these ones show that the trusted employee was the person pulling what turned out to be very large amounts of money out of the business. And look, you know, it's it's, it's not just that, is it? it? It's about having your eye really on the detail because, you know, 600000 out of the first company which went bust. Now, I don't know how big that company was and I don't know how much it was, it was it went bust owing or anything, but 600000 sounds like a lot of money for a lot of businesses. And, and, and even if that was over six years, you would think... Or if it was over 12, you would think that number is substantial. And and to miss that in, you know, that's, it just seems odd to me. It that's means that that person was trusted, but no one was going back and thinking, gosh, this business isn't operating well. Where can we save some money? Where are we spending that we shouldn't be? That's right. It's a lot of money to uh, to walk out the door. Yeah. Yeah. And I look, the other thing which I, which, uh, I bemoan a lot, and it didn't occur in that case, but because uh, I was watching the news around that, because the company went bust, she went on to another business with a reference, unbelievably, right, from the previous employer. But so many of these people, when they're found to be caught stealing, are just fired and go on and do it again in another business. Um, I'm not sure, maybe at 600,000 the cops might have been called in if the first business had realised it, but sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Um now, Mark, uh, I had a great interview during the week with uh, Cisco, uh, it's a big IT firm, Cisco, head of Asia-Pacific, Japan and China, Miyuki Suzuki. Um, I thought maybe, you know, you were there. What did you glean from that event? So this was one of our success on leadership breakfasts mm. and there was a good crowd there at the Western Hotel on Wednesday morning. Mm. Um, look, fascinating uh, discussion. Now, Cisco is not exactly a, a household brand name, but they're a, they're a networking company. So it's their technology that sort of sits behind the internet in many ways. Yep. Um, one of the themes that got discussed, because I subsequently attended a lunch with Mayuki as well, and a lot of people talk about the impact of technology and how disruptive it is on pretty much every industry and every business. And in fact, Cisco themselves are being disrupted by rapid change, mm. becoming less of a hardware business and more of a software business. Yep. Um, you know, the Internet of Things, this future world where every device um, can be connected to the Internet, which then creates huge amounts of data um, and people need to find some way of managing that big data, as we call it, and getting extracting some value from it. So, you know, this is the the brave new world that we're going into. Um, So Miyuki brings a fascinating perspective to this. Um, A Japanese lady who grew up in Melbourne, studied at Oxford University, 
did medieval history of all things, mm. now runs one of the world's largest IT businesses. Now, they've got a significant presence in Perth. They've got an innovation centre out at Curtin University Correct. Uh, in partnership with Woodside. They've backed the Cyber Research Centre up at Edith Cowan University. So two great examples of industry partnering with academia. Um, and the other example they spoke about, the new Woodside building yep. that's recently been occupied up at the top of the terrace. Um, now, it's a, it's a shiny new tower, um, but filled with the latest and greatest in, in um, technology to make it, um, if you like, a very modern, very different workplace. And Cisco played a big role in that. Um, so some examples there of what you know, they're doing for business in Perth. Um, and yeah, look, fascinating to get her international perspective on Perth. She was quite positive about how innovative and some of the good things are happening in Australia. She was actually. She was really positive. And I, and I, and I, I found this quite a contrast to how we talk about education in our own country. She was really positive about the way our school system operates, especially with the adoption of technology. She was really positive about our tertiary education sector, thinks our universities are outstanding. You know, that's not a message you often hear. And in the Asia Pacific, we're all, you know, gnashing our teeth over China, coming up and their universities and like, well, actually, she thinks we're ahead. And she was very positive about Australian business being prepared to uh, adopt technology early before it's been tried and tested, um, willing to give it a go. Uh, look, I found a number of things she said really interesting. Obviously, she's a complete outlier. You know, if you think there's not many female business leaders in Australia, well, go to Japan. And in fact, she says she studied at Oxford. She was living in the UK. She said if she'd been a boy, her dad, who was a was a uh, travel an executive for a major Japanese firm, and they'd been moved around the world, her dad would have sent her. If she was a boy, her dad would have sent her to Japan to go to one of the elite universities. But because she was a girl, it didn't really matter. She could study wherever she wanted, and she chose Oxford. Now, that's a fascinating kind of bit of insight. She talks about, um, about you know, being a female executive in, in Japan and, and how tough that is, but it's obviously created the person. Um, and, Mark, I actually found uh, I, there were two little anecdotes I really enjoyed. Firstly, she got the job with Cisco and, and she sort of said, well, what do you expect? And uh, the, the, the boss of Cisco said, I want 15% growth in a market that had been dead, she said, you know, in terms of growth. Uh, just Japan, I think, at that stage. So she went off and she did, you know, she did the westernised thing. She got all the younger, up-and-coming people, the kind of leading go-getters in the company, brought them together, created some task force and said, find me how we're going to get there. Break the model. Uh, a, 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 you know, a, 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 an up, what's it? The opposite of the top-down approach. Bottom-up. Bottom-up, thank you. Don't know why I couldn't think of that. So bottom-up approach, not the Japanese way, very unusual. Uh, and then, look, the other little bit, which was something that was more, it was funny, we, we, we were using a new technology ourselves, Slido, to get the questions from the audience. And there were a few techie questions in there. One of them, I, you know, I literally had to read it out, and I hope I remember it right, but it was, you know, what is her view on the move from IPv4 to IPv6? And I had to say, look, I don't even understand what you're talking about there. So it's basically your IP addresses that every, you know, um, server I affect has. Uh, she says that with the Internet of Things and so many things getting connected to the, uh, to the Internet, 
the IP addresses that we're using under IPv4 are too small. Go back to when you and I were young fellas here, I remember we had six digit phone numbers, right? Now what have we got? Eight, or you know, eight with a code as well. So it's the same thing. They're just running out of numbers to use. She said the, um, the US system, the US kind of bureaucracy are the ones that are kind of dragging their heels on this because it kind of, you know, they're, they're not pressed as much as some other parts of the world. So I found that kind of fascinating. It was indeed. And one more point that struck a chord with me, she spoke about artificial intelligence. And this is a, for many people, it's a scary concept. But Miyuki uh, saw it as actually a very positive thing. You know, it's about using the power of machine learning um, to manage all that big data that I alluded to before mm. um, and to be a, a tool that can help us achieve better things rather than taking over the world, yeah. as some of the scary uh, suggestions are. I must admit, while she was answering that question, I was thinking the, 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 the clue, the key to AI, right, is that a machine only has to learn once, right? That, that, that learning is completely transferable. Right, so if, if you have a dozen machines doing the same thing, if you've got one that's learnt it, it just passes that learning on. You and I, and our children, we've got to learn it over and over and over again. And I know that yes, there are something calculation calculators took over, so you know people didn't have to do all the complete learning. But but really, you know, machines just only have to learn it once. We all have to learn it. Big difference. Um, now. Mark, uh, we've updated our commercial property owners list uh, as part of um, our special report into commercial property. Tell us what that special report and what that new updated list is telling us. Yep, so look, Peter Commode has had a look at the industry and this is one of our lists that people will find on our website under the BNIQ tab. And uh, so look, number one on the list, Brookfield Property Partners, uh, a big Canadian group. And what's striking there is that um, Brookfield is number one, is an example of the increased foreign ownership of commercial property in Western Australia. In fact, the data that Peter's pulled together is that over the last decade, foreign investors have gone from 26% of commercial property in WA up to 41%. Okay. So a very significant shift there. Now, are we talking about all commercial property and that's a, is that's this, a broader figure or are we just talking about the CBD there? This is office buildings primarily yeah. okay. uh, as opposed to shopping centres and, and other classes and, and industrial gotcha. and so on. Yeah. Uh, but look, some of the other names there, you know, Dexas, big uh, listed company in Australia, Prime West um, out of Perth, um, very substantial property owner, number three on the list, uh, GDI Property, Charter Hall, they're also listed, and BGC. Uh, so the, the Buckeridge family, still a, a very substantial landlord around Perth, yep. as well, of course, having their very large operating businesses. And so they are more assets that may or may not be sold as part of the, the sale process the Buckeridge family is going through. Yeah. Um, one thing that Peter's done in detail for this feature is talk to Brookfield about their long-term plans for Perth. Now, you know, people associate them with Brookfield Place, one and two, you know, home of BHP and many other businesses. So you know, two very substantial towers. Um, they also own uh, 108 St George's Terrace, the EY building. They've got half of the Bishop C building up at the top end of the terrace. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've also got very substantial plans. Uh, they own two sites at Elizabeth Quay uh, where they've mapped out some 
very ambitious plans. One is including a 53-level tower. Plus, Brookfield has now uh, agreed to develop Chevron's new office tower at Elizabeth Quay. Yeah, right. um, they've got development rights above the bus port next to the EY building. Um, and then further around that Bishop C precinct, there's, there's land there for more development opportunities. So there's a, if you like, there's a master plan that Brookfield is working on where mm. there'll be a, um, almost a, a physically linked network of buildings running through the Perth CBD, running east-west. Yeah. Um, and this is similar to what they've done in other markets. So Canary Wharf in London, Manhattan, uh, Toronto, where this company is headquartered. They've done similar things there. Yeah, right. So, you know, this over time will have a quite transformational effect um, on the Perth market. Yeah, and taking all the views by the looks of things. I'll have the river front spots in many cases. And it's interesting you talk about that foreign ownership and you look at that, you know, that that side of the existing Brookfield uh, buildings. Now, obviously, that was multiplex, which... You know, another arm of Brookfield took over Multiplex when Multiplex effectively overextended and tried to, well, did build the Wembley Stadium in, in London, but, but it caused it all sorts of financial difficulty and in the end, Brookfield took them out. And that site, that site there sat there vacant for a long, long, long time, from the late 80s or early 90s. It was a, a, a kind of eyesore. So isn't that funny that, you know, you fast forward 25, 30 years and... They're the biggest owners, or amongst the big, or they are the biggest, and yep. and and it's foreign, not local. Yep, just how it goes. Well, thank you, Mark. Um, on November twenty-seven, we'll hear from West Farmers Managing Director Rob Scott uh, about one year after he took over the reins of the state's biggest industrial company and the nation's leading private employer. In the throes of spinning off the Coles supermarket business, he will be discussing uh, his approach to leading this diversified conglomerate the dynamic markets in which Australian business operates. You can purchase tickets by going to our website and hitting the events tab or giving us a call on 9288-2100. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.